Good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul here. So glad you're joining us, whether in person or online. You know, growing up, I hated it when when my friends would get to do something that I didn't get to do, like spend the night somewhere or go on a trip or go to Six Flags in Atlanta or a retreat. And they would always come back and they would say, oh man, oh man, Paul, you should have been there. I was about to say Pastor Paul, but they didn't call me that then, okay? You should have been there. It was the greatest thing ever. I can't, I mean, you just, you'll never recapture that moment. Don't you love it when people do that? At the risk of being that guy, let me just say, last Sunday night was an awesome night. And um, it was just amazing at our sunset service to gather together. There was about 300 of you that came out and worshiping under the canopy oaks and singing and praising, and it was an awesome time. Have no fear, all right? We are going for round number two. We're not sure it's going to be tonight. Um, we will send out in a social media blast a text um, early this afternoon to let you know, but just looking at the forecast, we're anticipating it might be difficult because we have to bring everything out and get set up um, early in the afternoon. But regardless, um, whether it's tonight or next week, we'd love to have you 6.30 p.m., bring your own chairs. Um, and so we're just, um, it was a super time. And one of the things I mentioned last Sunday night was like being at a reunion, wasn't it? There was some of us seeing each other for the first time six, seven months and just a little slice of heaven. Um, and it was, it was awesome. Okay. This morning we're in Genesis chapter 42 and we're looking at a reunion of an entirely different sort. As we saw last week, there is this, this startling turn of events where Joseph goes from prison to palace to pinnacle. He becomes, by virtue of the fact that God has given them this gift to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, he's been promoted to be the second highest in command of the most powerful nation of the world. He is now the prime minister. And that's last where we left Joseph off. And now it's been seven years, the seven years of plenty. They've come and gone which means that it's been a grand total, can you believe this, how time flies, 20 years since that ill-fated reunion with his brothers when they had not greeted him, but they had thrown him into a pit. And now, here we are 20 years later, Joseph is the second most powerful person literally in the world, and guess who shows up? Guess who's coming to get dinner? Guess who's knocking at the front door? It's the brothers. And they've come begging for spirit, for, for physical grain, but yet they are being confronted with a very, very large spiritual skeleton in their closet, aren't they? What are they going to do? What is Joseph going to do? That's where we are. So three things I want to draw your attention to this morning from this text. Number one, a destitute situation. Number two, a spiritual strategy. And thirdly, an awakened conscience. The bad, the ugly, and the good. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, this story is way bigger than ten brothers and their families getting their bellies filled in a time of famine. And Lord, we know that there is so much more for us this morning. That we do not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from your mouth. And we pray that you attend our hearts, till our souls, that we, our souls, our hearts, our minds might find a receptive ground for your word 
today. And we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, a destitute situation. As we see from these opening verses, verse 5, a famine has swept the land. Just as God had told Joseph, Joseph, Joseph had predicted. There's been seven years of plenty, but now it is seven years later, and the whole known world is caught up in this famine, which includes Canaan. And of course, Canaan is where Jacob and his family and Joseph's 11 brothers are now residing, and they've been caught up in this mess too. And verse 1 tells us, it, it tells us much, much more than initially appears. Look at verse 1. It says, Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt. So there was a famine. Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt. Now, this is strange. And the reason it's strange is we have to ask, why is Jacob, of all people, having to point it out and inquire about how they are to be fed? I mean, come on. Jacob is on the road to retirement. He's 100 years old. He's playing shuffleboard and bingo down in the villages, isn't he? And the brothers are the ones who are supposed to be providing for the family. The brothers are, are, are carrying this mantle. They're not teenagers or kids anymore. These are grown men with families of their own. But it tells us very tellingly in the, in the verse, they were sitting around looking at each other. Now, here's what is sort of conjured up in my mind when I hear that. Back in the 70s, growing up, every Saturday night, it was either at 6 or 7 p.m. Eastern time, I can't remember, we would sit down as a family and watch, and some of you are old enough to remember this, we would watch Hee Haw, okay? And Hee Haw is what people in East Tennessee did for high society, okay? And so we'd gather around, and one of my very favorite drama sketches in this thing, it was a comedy, of course, all these famous celebrities, country celebrities would come on. You had these four guys, Roy Clark was one of them, and they, were, they would dress like hillbillies in their overalls, and they would each have a jug of moonshine, and of course there was the coonhound laying out in front of their rockers. And they would sing this song, and as soon as I say the words, you'll remember it if you watched it. I'm not going to sing it, but I will afterwards if you want me to. Doom and despair and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. And they would tell these jokes about somebody's wife ran off with somebody else's wife and took the truck and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, but, but the, my favorite part is they would punctuate it, okay? And the reason I remember this so vividly is that I watched it on YouTube this week and wasted an hour I'll never get back, okay? And, and so they would, they would come on, and between every line, they would all, one of them would moan or groan, and this is all you'll get from me. They would go, uh, like that. Remember that? Well, this, this is what I visualize here. These guys are whining and moaning and complaining but they're not doing anything. And as Kent Hughes has said about this passage, he said, these brothers are a miserable lot. And I think he's exactly right. They are paralyzed, passive, immobilized, and their physical passivity is really a mirror of their spiritual passivity. You see, this is a family weighed down by their choices and the despair of the last 20 years. See, this is, this is what unconfessed and undealt with sin looks like in a family where it just hangs like a cloak of shame. Remember, just, just, just some of the, 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 the more notorious highlights of this family. Reuben is estranged from his father at this time because he slept with his father's concubine, Billa. Remember that Judah 
has impregnated his daughter-in-law who was forced to pretend to be a prostitute in order to get him to, to, to further the line because her husband died and he wouldn't give her his next in line son. Remember that Simeon and Levi were cold-blooded murderers. Remember that they had taken revenge for their daughters, I mean their sisters dying as defilement, but they had gone way overboard. They had murdered, massacred a whole village of wives and children and men. And let's not forget that they constantly lived under the specter, right, of this dastardly deed that they had committed 20 years ago. And, and, and as try as they might, right, to assuage their guilt and stuff it down and act like it didn't happen, they knew in their hearts they had committed a wretched, murderous sin against their brother when they had sold him into slavery. And not only that... They had come back and lied. They had lied to their father about this. And that man's heart was broken, and they didn't do anything to assuage it. And it is now 20 years later. Yes, indeed, they are a wretched family. So Jacob wants them to go find food in Egypt, but he makes it very clear, you're not taking Benjamin. And this tells us more than meets the eye, right? There is no question that Jacob knows the character of these men. These are all their known sins, right? And he has, doesn't have to put two and two together to know something doesn't smell right. Parents, you get this vibe, right? There's something that doesn't smell right. It's, your, your spidey sense is going off. It's tingling. You may not be able to put your finger on it, but it's like there's a disturbance in the forest. Jacob knew this. And remember, J Joseph was his favorite because he was the son of his favorite wife, Rachel. And all that was left was Benjamin. He's like, you're not taking Benjamin. I don't trust you guys further than I can throw you. And, and, and his message here is very clear. I don't care what happens to you, right? You're expendable. Go back and carry as much grain. I'm keeping the one I love right here beside me. You see, this wretchedness, this dysfunction has just permeated, sits over the life of this family. And so they head to Egypt, and lo and behold, what do you know? They, quote-unquote, run into Joseph, right? Now, two things immediately like, should spring to mind. One is, come on, Pastor Paul, how in the world did they not recognize their own brother? He recognized them. I mean, they stood out like sore thumbs. They were Semitic men with beards in the middle of an Egyptian society. How come they didn't recognize him? Have you looked lately at your picture from 20 years ago and compared it to now okay men you are no you are so much worse off than you are then women you've you've aged with beauty and grace and all those things but men have just they've gone right downhill but joseph right joseph is a strapping man he dude's just 37 i mean he's shaved right his head's shaved his face is shaved he's got that buff tan like he's he's been living in egypt right he's wearing these robes and rings and of course they didn't recognize him but secondly, and I think this is the bigger question, how in the world did they happen to run across Joseph? I did a little research in between the hee-haw sketches this week and found out that Egypt, we think of it as a, a small place. It's kind of like Massachusetts or something, right? Or Rhode Island. Do you know that Egypt is one and a half times the size of California? It is a very, very large place. How in the world do they just randomly meet? It, it reminds me, we took a, a Four Oaks Israel trip about four years ago. And while we were being guided around 
Jerusalem, this Israeli man came up and found out we were from the United States, and he said, oh, United States, I love the United States. And he, he, he found something, and he said, you know, I, I know someone in Tennessee. That's what he said. I know someone in Tennessee. And Phil Schwartz is like, our pastor, he's originally from Tennessee. I know this man. You know how this goes, right? He says, his name is Jim Suddeth, which is one of my best friends, okay? It was, I mean, it does happen, right? But there's no, but it's, oh, but it does. That's God's providence, right? Clearly God's providence. And Moses is trying to tell us this is no random happenstance thing. This is part of God's sovereign plan to save his people, to put Joseph in this position, to, to bring his brothers down, to give them food, to propagate the line of promise. But here's something I want you to consider, folks. Here's something I want you to consider. Why, if that's, if that's all that's going on, in other words, save the promise line, save the family. They're about to starve to death in a gamut. If, if, that's all, if that's the main thing that's happening here or the only thing that's happening here, then why the rest of this story? See, Joseph, has he not served his purpose? He's played the role of the GoFundMe anonymous donor, and we all love that guy, right? We, we love anonymous donor. He could have been played the anonymous donor. There's the brothers. I know they're destitute. They need food. God's made some promises to them. I don't want anything to do with them, but send them back with food. No worse for wear. Send them home with the love offering, right? Why, why all this cat, cat and mouse? Why all this intrigue? Why is it necessary? The answer is obvious, right? God is never content with just giving his people material life or physical life or physical provision. See, God wants to give these brothers spiritual life. And God wants to give you and I, brothers and sisters, spiritual life. For, for, for him, just to make financial, physical provision, there is all kinds of unfinished business here, isn't there? There's unfinished business of the heart. And so God has strategically placed Joseph here to do a little spiritual strategery, to, to, by the grace of God, work his grace like yeast into the dough, into the very fabric of their lives. And so let's see how this works. Second point. The reason I say that Joseph's spiritual strategy here is ugly is because on the surface, it appears ugly. It feels ugly, does it not? It, it looks vindictive. It, I mean, think about, I mean, just all the things he's taking them through, mean Joseph, cruel Joseph. Joseph is a, is a meanie, but what I, what I want us to see as we unpack this is that I believe that from start to finish, this is a carefully crafted piece of spiritual strategy on the part of Joseph that is designed to expose his brother's hearts, to reveal their motives, and to prepare them for the work of grace that God wants to do in their lives. And if you are in a situation, if you are in a famine this season, whatever way you want to define that, whether it's something that's been brought to you or something that you've brought upon yourself, so to speak, 
Regardless, the issue is the same. What does God want to do in and through you in that place? I want you to notice three things that Joseph does. I mean, he does, he does more than that, but the three things in particular. Number one, it says that Joseph spoke roughly to them. He accuses them of being spies. Now, he knows they're not spies, so why would he accuse them of being spies? See, I think this is where Joseph is flipping the script on them a little bit. He's holding up a mirror for them to see themselves in this accusation. Because after all, why did the brothers throw Joseph into the pit in part? Because they thought daddy's boy had been sent to what? Spy on them. He, they, they, they thought he, and, and, and he had in a sense, right? Go check on those brothers. Come back and tell me. He gave a bad report. And Joseph is saying, okay, spies, what do you have to say for yourself? The second thing he does is that he presses them with this accusation three different times. And obviously this is a classic interrogation technique, right? If you watch any kind of law and order show, what do they do? They get the, they get the guy in the room. They hope, they hope and pray he doesn't call his lawyer in, doesn't lawyer up. And they ask him the same thing over and over and over again. And the best thing, the thing the interrogator loves the most, right, is when someone starts talking. Doesn't really matter what they're saying. Just let them talk. Let them talk themselves into a corner. Let them talk. Let them give them enough rope to hang themselves. And so when they tell him, no, 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 we're not spies. We're honest men. I mean, this is kind of like, no, I, I didn't do that evil thing. Now, I did 85 other wicked things, but just not that wicked thing. Joseph presses in and they begin to share. Now, isn't this interesting? And I think this is where you begin to see their consciences begin to come alive, right? They begin to share things they had no intention of sharing. They begin to voice things to one another and to him they may not have voiced, who knows, for decades. You see, Joseph, part of what's going on here, he knows Benjamin's not there. He wants to know, where are they? Where is Benjamin? How is he? Where's my dad? Is he still alive? And he's getting them talking. They're sharing things. They're opening their hearts. They are revealing pieces of their story. See, that's what, that's what you know, you can really tell when the Spirit is working in someone's life, when they just begin to tell their story, they begin to talk about what's going on and where they've been and, and how they've gotten here and may not have all the pieces put together, but that the Holy Spirit is kind of the, the, the spiritual lubricant that brings their heart and their mind alive. And you're starting to see this with, the, with these 10. And they're saying, you know what? We actually, we're not just 10 brothers. We're 12. One's back home and one is no more. The third thing that we see, and I think this is particularly powerful on the part of Joseph, is that he gets them in reality to reenact their own betrayal. And he has them thrown into prison for three days. Obviously, you know the story. What did the brothers do to Joseph? They threw him in the pit. And now what does Joseph do to them? He throws them, and the word for pit and prison is the same. He throws them into the pit. And you can imagine the things they are saying in those three days, right? You can just imagine. 
They've been accused of high treason. There is only one way this ends. It ends the way of the baker, right? Who had his head separated from him. And, and they are, I mean, they are no doubt, and you can see it in the, in the, in the subsequent discourse that they are having. Th- these guys may be wicked, but they're not dumb. They're putting two and two together. They're saying, I mean, come on, this is happening because of us. We see ourselves in this exact situation. I mean, God is bringing recompense upon us. And so they're, 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 they're squirming and they're wrestling. And then Joseph comes to them and he has a counterproposal. And again, do you see how this, this mirrors his own story? Remember when Jacob, I mean, Joseph was in that pit and he was crying for help and escape and salvation and he thought he was for sure going to die. But then what happened? This turn of events. And you don't know whether to be happy or glad or sad or shocked or whatever is like no we're not going to kill you we're just going to sell you as a slave to the people in egypt so this is what happens here he was going to say he he did initially say keep 10 brothers here send one back but now in sort of this reversal of fortune he said no no actually you can just keep one here and send 10 back see joseph See, and again, I want you to see the grace that is a part of this. We're going to talk more about this in a second. But Joseph knows that if only one goes back, he can only carry a very small amount of grain. But if 10 go back, they can carry all the more to their starving families. Now, why does he keep Simeon? Why of all the brothers does he keep Simeon? Well, it's interesting that when when Joseph is eavesdropping on this conversation with his brothers, once he gives them this word, remember, Joseph, this is a ruse. And so he's been communicating with them through an interpreter as part of the part of the show. But obviously they don't know that he can understand everything that they're saying. And what Joseph, what we find out in this story is that Joseph discovers for the first time that Reuben was not the responsible one for his his kidnapping and selling into slavery. See, he would have assumed it was Reuben because Reuben was the oldest. He was the patriarch of the brothers at that point in time. But what he finds out is that Reuben actually didn't want this at all. And so I think Joseph chose Simeon because Simeon is the next one in line. He's the second oldest brother. See, I think what, what Joseph is doing here is a piece of masterful strategy. Because here it is. Would these brothers love their brother enough to come back and claim him once they got back home with all the food? Or would they treat him just like they treated me? You see, Joseph is after in all this strategy. He wants to know his brother's heart. He wants to know where they are. He wants to know what God has been doing within them. And you may say, well, Pastor Paul, what, come on, why, all the, why doesn't Joseph just reveal himself? Why don't he just come out and say, hey, surprise. Let bygones be bygones. Just bring your dad, bring dad, dear old dad down here. Let, let this, what you guys did was ancient history. We're just going to... Just sweep that aside. I've got power now. We all love each other. We're making provision. Why play these games, you may say? It's not a game. It's the grace of God. 
See, this is what the Bible calls rugged, tough, biblical love. See, when the man in 1 Corinthians 5 was committing sexual immorality, Paul says, put him outside the fellowship, treat him as an unbeliever, not because we hate him and want his soul to be destroyed, but because we love him and we want his soul to be preserved. But he cannot be preserved, he cannot be restored unless he acknowledges his sin, unless he repents, unless he confesses, then then we can have reconciliation, and not faux reconciliation, but real reconciliation. And we know from 2 Corinthians 2, this is indeed what happened. Let me read it. For such a time, such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. He's talking about this man in 1 Corinthians 5. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul's saying, look, you've done this deed of excommunication, and he's repented, he's confessed, he, he's been sorrowful. But make no, and, and so so don't, don't perpetuate it if he's repenting. But make no mistake, brokes, for there to be brokenness of sin and true confession and true repentance, there has to be genuine sorrow. See, Paul says, worldly sorrow leads to death. Godly sorrow reaps a harvest of righteousness because it generates repentance. See, only when we see the despair and darkness of our sin, it's only at that point that we will truly repent, that we will turn to Christ. And here's the way God designed us. We won't see the darkness of our sin for oaks and the despair of our sin until we are allowed to walk in the choices that we have made. And that's what Joseph is doing for these brothers, not because he hates them or is exacting revenge upon them, but because in his heart of hearts, he still wants God's best for them. Parents, enabling is not the same as loving. Friends, Listening without offering admonition or correction is not the same thing as loving. Spouses, supporting unconditionally, no matter how foolishly or sinfully your spouse is behaving, is not the same thing as loving. For Joseph, just to give them food and a spiritual high five on the way out the door, that's not the same thing as loving. To love someone means to walk alongside of them in a way that helps them to have an awakened conscience. Because apart from an awakened conscience, you and I can never be reconciled to God. Which brings us to our last point. An awakened conscience. One of the key indicators of true repentance is a growing awareness of sin. And it sounds counterproductive because, Pastor Paul, guilt makes me feel bad. And when my consciences bother me, it, I, it's, it's uncomfortable. I feel separated from God. How is this supposed to bring me closer to, to God? Look at verse 21. I think it's maybe the pivotal verse of this particular section, this in verse 28. But let me read verse 21 first. They're all having this conversation together. And by the way, when sin presses upon you, that's what you do. You're having a conversation. And by the way, if you find yourself in a moment of famine or deep struggle, you're having a conversation with yourself. What this means. And they, then they said to one another, verse 21, in truth, what? 
we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. We would not listen to our brother. We are guilty. We are reaping what we have sown. Folks, this is the grace of God. You see, guilt has gotten a really bad name. We feel guilt, we think automatically that's a negative emotion to be extinguished by whatever virtue we can. And, and there is a false sense of guilt, don't get me wrong. There's, 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 there's things that we can carry a burden and responsibility for that we aren't responsible because our consciences are immature or we don't know the word of God. But for every person who's like that, I promise you there's 10 others, 100 others who don't rightly handle the guilt that they have. You see, in order for guilt to be rightly addressed and covered by the blood of Christ, it has to be identified. It, ha- it can't be ignored. It can't be extinguished. I remember when I was doing some of my therapy training in grad school, and there was a woman who came into the clinic, and she was suffering greatly as a result of the consequences of her choices. There was issues of abandonment that she had of her kids. She had walked away from many of the roles and responsibilities that had been given her, and she was rightfully guilty, rightfully lamenting. But I remember in that therapy discussion, and the supervisor was talking to all of us as students, and the conversation went something like this, She's feeling guilt, but she's never going to be who she needs to be if she's still feeling guilt. She did the best she could. She, she just needs to rehearse herself that, that while the situation in her life is not optimal, it was the choice that she had to make at that time to make it through. And let me tell you, folks, there is no hope in that. There is no hope in that at all. That woman has a restlessness in her soul that can only be addressed in one way, and that's by the grace of Christ. And so the same thing with the brothers. They're on their way home, and they discover this money that's in the bag, which Joseph has obviously put there, again, as part of his test, as part of his strategy. And what do they say in verse 28? And again, what I want you to see here is the deep thaw from the ice age that their consciences had been in for 20 years. See, this is one of the things that I bet they didn't even talk about it afterwards. There was such shame, such guilt. It's like we dare not even utter it. We dare not even acknowledge it. It's too painful. We're not going there. Let's go about their lives. The sooner we forget about this, the better. But here they are saying things I don't think they've ever said to each other. Things that they haven't said in 20 years. Look at verse 28. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? Isn't that interesting? See, whenever God brings discipline into our lives, 
That's a natural question to ask. What is God doing to me? And see, the thing is, God is doing something to you and to me. But it's not what we think. You see, this feels bad. This must be, this must be bad. This, this, is, this is unbearable. I can't handle this. I can't take this. This doesn't feel like grace. And so oftentimes that is very true. It does not feel like grace. But as we're going to see in the life of these brothers, they were more right than they realized. This is God, something that God has done. This is something that God is bringing to the surface. And through it all, Joseph is overhearing these conversations with them. What does Joseph do? He weeps. Now, I find that very interesting. Number one, if we are someone who is having to bring a word of correction or discipline or admonishment to a brother or sister, we should always do so through tears. We should always do so with a heaviness of heart that we are treading on sacred ground. But I think, secondly, it reveals something else about Joseph as well. I don't think Joseph is simply weeping for himself, although I think there's clearly that sense of loss. I think Joseph is weeping for them. It's so hard, is it not, to watch those that you love walk through the disciplining hand and process of God's sanctifying spirit. It's so hard. And we want to move in and we want to rescue so much. We want to spare. We want to absolve. We want to shield. But when we do that, can I just gently encourage us, folks? We short-circuit the very means of grace that God is wanting to use to draw that person to himself. You see, what, what's driving the brothers at this point? What's driving them? God, God's justice is coming for us. God's righteousness has caught up with us. God's wrath is nipping at our heels. And here's what you need to hear us say. And hear me say, I think this is from the word. They aren't wrong. All that is entirely true. God's wrath is pressing in. His justice is pressing in. And I think when Moses is writing this to the people of Israel, the person they're going to most identify with in this story, and I think the, the person we're going to most identify with is not Joseph. Who is it? It's the brothers. We're the brothers. That's the whole point. This is what we do. This is who we are. We, we, we fear the just retribution of God. But Christian, there is an alternative. And that's the whole point of the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He has raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Whose wrath? God's wrath. And as the brothers feel this pressing in they think it's the hounds of hell. And if they don't repent, it is. But when they hear the gracious call of their God, it's the hounds of heaven. It's the hounds of, of God's grace chasing them through the corridors 
of their maze of death and lostness until he finally corners them and they say, we are the guilty ones. We, we, we are that person. We are that man. Yes, we, we did this thing. And that is called the grace of God. Folks, it's the grace of God in our lives. And what we see here beginning in, in verse chapter 42, and it's going to unfold itself over these next several weeks, is that this deep winter freeze, it's like, it's like the winter in Narnia, right? Always winter, never Christmas. That's what sin feels like. That's what sin is. But yet, it doesn't happen all at once, right? There's not an immediate transition to spring. But what did the kids and the animals begin to say? Oh, there's some snow melting. Oh, look at that flower. Oh, look. And they realize that the slow thaw of winter is giving way to the grace of spring. And that's precisely the point of this passage. And we are going to see this work of redemptive grace. And it's a process. These guys are still rough. It doesn't negate all the consequences. It doesn't negate all the pain. But we're going to see Judah make a speech. We're going to see repentance left and right. We're going to see a restored family. But yet, it has to start here. Folks, what is God doing in this season, in the famine, maybe, of your life? Whatever it is, if you're a child of his, it's love. You see, God is patient. Paul tells us in Romans that it's the, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so today, this side of the cross, we can say with Paul, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come, the just wrath. All we have to do is turn to him. All we have to do is look. All we have to do is fly. All we have to do is turn and let Jesus heal us from our sins. This, Christian, is the gospel of grace. Let's pray.